Well, you can read the statistics from just about any pollster, and that is that people, particularly the 18 to 30-year-old person in America, is leaving the church in droves. I'm not talking about people who leave one church who go to another. I'm talking about people who leave the church altogether. Uh, people who study this thing tell us that youth who are in church today, 80% of them will be out of going to any church at all by the time they're 30. That is a staggering statistic. And people who study these things say that the issues are, are complicated. We can't just say, well, it's all because of this one reason or, or, or that. Um, and you certainly can't lump the 18 and 30-year-olds into any just one group. But researchers have written about this, have basically put the dissatisfied, you might say, into several different groups just to help us define some of these, uh, some of these reasons. The first are the postmodern leavers. These are not my words, theirs. Postmodern leavers. Uh, these are folks who basically tire of simplistic answers. They, they want a place where dialogue is welcome and, and feel like the, the church just speaks in cliches and it doesn't really get past that, that layer. Then there are the recoilers. These are people who are sick of the hypocrisy. They have, they have either experienced or seen abuse in the church, and they do not want to get near it with a 10-foot pole. Then there are the rationalists. These are the people who are tired of the church giving pat answers when it comes to maybe something like the origins of, of the universe. And the rationalist is sick of this faith-science divide and wonders why, uh, you know, we can't embrace science. And then there are the spiritualists. The spiritualists are those who want some, something experiential within the body of Christ and feel like the church is just basically dead and stale. There was a group that they identified that actually was the largest group of them all. Each of these groups I just mentioned were really kind of small in percentage, but the largest group were what they called the drifters, the drifters. These people find nothing compelling from the church. They don't see how the church is relating to where they're at. They're not particularly angry. Uh, they don't particularly have hang-ups with the doctrine. They just, don't, they just see the church as completely irrelevant. Now, for those of us who are a part of the church, I think there, there's a natural tendency to maybe get a little defensive about this and perhaps cast all the blame, all those rebels out there who refuse to be a part of the body of Christ. And I think that would be a mistake for us to do that. You know, in talking to scores of people, that want to have nothing to do with church. And this group is getting bigger by the minute, it seems. And particularly with students on the campus that I talk to. I don't find them particularly angry. There are some, but that's a smaller percentage. I don't find them particularly angry about church. Well, I should say this. They're not particularly angry about God. They're just not into church. 
They may even believe in Jesus, have a walk with Jesus, and even love Jesus, but simply cannot make the connection with church. They're really looking for something that they cannot find or have yet to experience. Now, I get that some people don't care at all. You can't reach them. But I think that there's a group of people within our culture that, that we could maybe do a better job of. And I think that our church in particular could really minister to. So our challenge, I think, as a church is to, to listen well, to maybe make whatever adjustments need to be made in our approach, in our tone, to make it possible for people to have a path to get connected to the body of Christ. Now, one thing is for sure. If we get defensive, if we immediately make assumptions about these people and all lump them, lump them into one group, and if we don't listen, we will stay stagnant. We will not reach those people, and then basically we just become a museum liking everything that's on the inside of the building and having really no impact on the outside. I'm not saying we're like that, but I'm saying that is a natural, I think, response for people. It is interesting to me that our biggest demographic in our church is that 18 to 30-something person. And so then that's the demographic that, that we're talking about. I mean, just look around and look at all of the children. I was, uh, Laura was telling me not too long ago, Laura Key, uh, the one who heads up our children's ministry, does an awesome job. We have over 100 volunteers just in our children's ministry from the, the nursery on up through like six or that's a mountain of people who have to be, you know, orchestrated to, together to, to work to minister to those kids. How did we get here with all these young couples? I don't know. I can't say that there was some great strategy to make it happen, uh, some master plan. I just think the Spirit has implanted values within our body that resonate with that, that group. You know, there are certain values that, that researchers have pointed out are things that those that are disenfranchised with the church that really appeal to them. Now, I'm not claiming that we, that we can become or even desire to become all things to all people. And I don't claim that we have these values down perfectly, but could we not maybe leverage some of these values, perhaps even some strengths that we have, continue to improve on them, and convey to others what we are about? who we really are, to create that pathway that, that people could experience what they're looking for. Uh, there's a book called Church Refugees by Josh Packer. He's a professor of sociology in northern Colorado, co-authored with Ashley Hope of Vanderbilt. They go beyond the statistics in trying to really understand why people are leaving the church. And from the book, you can distill basically three values that this disenfranchised group are really looking for. Those three values are authentic community, meaningful mission, and honest and intelligent dialogue. I'd like to explore efforts that CCC is making in these areas and then maybe talk about how we can, how we can participate in that. First is honest and intelligent dialogue. 
It's something we certainly seek to foster in every opportunity we have, whether it's in a small group, in a class, or even within the congregation here. Uh, the, we often try to have a Q&A time after the sermon. It blows some people's minds because they've never seen that. They maybe even feel uncomfortable with it. And frankly, there's only a small group of people that will talk in a group this size, and usually they're the same people, all right? But we do it anyway because I think it says something about our culture, and it's an important value for us to have. In fact, uh, we're working on an app specifically for the church that would give people the ability to, on their smartphone, ask a question and have it immediately uh, show up to where I could see it and then interact with the, uh, with the message. Uh, I heard a talk recently related to this from a speaker who was talking about communication. He said there are three words that if we use these words, it would help to tap down the anger we often get in, in conflicts. Uh, it would help to communicate that we're not out to win an argument, that another person is valuable to us, that we're not necessarily the center of attention. You know what those three words were? Again, it helps in in any conflict. Those three words are, tell me more. Tell me more. Now, who would ever get upset (laughs) when you're in in a conflict, in an issue, and you're simply saying, tell me more? What that says is, I want to understand Your opinion is just as, or maybe even more important than mine. Tell me more. It gives honor to that person. Tell me more. Romans 12, 9 and 10 says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another. In showing honor, you never lose by showing honor. Always win, particularly with those that you are in conflict with. Show them honor, respect, dignity. Listen, I'm not saying answers don't exist. I'm not saying we can't speak the gospel boldly. But let our tone, our style of relating with others Show value. Show that we are listening well. Welcome questions. And I think the best atmosphere, the best venue where that can be demonstrated is in a small group. A small group. In fact, sociologists say that the bigger the group, the less participation there is in the discussion. Well, that's certainly true. Why? The biggest fear of people is what? Biggest fear by the statistics, speaking in public, public speaking. People are more afraid of that than spiders, heights, more than anything. Public speaking. Why? Because we feel exposed when we're in front of people and we're speaking. So small groups are a, a place where we can feel safer, we, we, particularly if we know the people, we get used to the people, um, and that's an optimal venue for dialogue. I, I think back of of uh, some times in our life group this past year where there were tears or people sharing the most intimate things about their lives. And I'm talking about in a group of about 12. And man, the, the fellowship was deep and impactful, uh, honest. 
intelligent dialogue. That's what people are yearning for. Second value, Packard and Hope said, is important, is participating in meaningful mission. Meaningful mission. In other words, active in the community and, and, and international involvement that makes a difference. Now, in the last several years, in, as I look back at Christ Community Church, there have been just significant strides made in this area. And I think if we were to be honest with ourselves, that was not a part of our, our DNA of, of active participation in the community or beyond. But this is something that God has really brought out in these last few years. I look at the initiatives with our Advent conspiracy giving before Christmas and how God has motivated his people to give literally tens of thousands of dollars for, for instance, for the orphans in Kenya through the Dusty Feet Ministry, for Syrian refugees in Jordan, which you just gave in a magnificent way. I remember over $10,000 just for that. I remember over $20,000 for the orphans in Kenya. For the children in Bolivia uh, that you gave for the, uh, when Gary Zimmerman was with us and talked about the need for that uh, home where they needed computers. I mean, you guys were just lavish them. Uh, For the unwed mothers and babies in Springfield. And then this year, we're going to be targeting the Bethlehem Care Point that we are partnering with in Guatemala. Uh, I mean, just amazing how you've given to these projects. And the giving hasn't just come in dollars, but it's also come in, in human resources. Add to the number of dollars the number of people that have gone out from this particular body or that you have supported in terms of mission. I, I did just a, a cursory count, looked over my calendar of the number of people that I've interviewed up on this stage that have gone out from our church or that are in ministries that our church was supporting. I counted in the la- just in the last six years, 82 interviews that I've had with people. 82 people that have gone out from this church or from, from other ministries that we have supported that are accomplishing the gospel mandate that we have gotten behind. Add to that the local ministries that we've supported with the Pregnancy Care Center, the One Soul Purpose, where we put shoes on all the kids in one school. Uh, Weaver Elementary, which uh, last year we clothed the entire school with an ensemble of, uh, of winter clothing and took a, took a U-Haul over to uh, Weaver and people disseminated that to every class. Just a glorious event. And then the unity event that we get behind where the black and white churches come together. Is that ever more needed than now to, to demonstrate before the community what really, but what can, what can bring us together? Uh, this is something we've been involved in and just seen tremendous movement. And I shared with you a couple weeks ago where we met with the city manager and they want to get behind the unity event, which is distinctly Christian. And they said, no, we think this is a, a good thing. And then we have the Convoy of Hope outreach that where over 10,000 people were involved. And, and we had people from our church participating in that to help the least of these in our city. And in addition to that, we are in conversation. Our staff all went to one location, the Fairbanks School, uh, this, uh, uh, a week ago. And our elders are going to go this week. 
um, to look at partnering with an initiative that this uh, ministry there is doing in helping those that are um, in poverty just in that neighborhood. And it's amazing what God is doing in terms of jobs, uh, job training, reading programs, after-school programs for the kids, feeding, clothing, just some really cool things that are going on that I think you'd be really excited to see, and we'll talk about that more. Um, these are just the ones we know about. The fact is, as I know, many of you in, in your life groups and as individuals have gone and, and ministered in effective ways that where I don't even hear the stories. But I tell you these things Not to say how great CCC is, but to give glory to God for how he is working in his people through his resources, his gifts, his church, in creating the kind of fruit that he is creating. It gives us an opportunity to say, yay, God, that's pretty amazing. And many of you have been actively involved also in sponsoring children with our Guatemalan initiative, sponsoring 90 children, where about $3,500 a month goes from this church so that 90 children can survive, thrive, and succeed. And we've made long-term commitments where we're going to go there at least once or twice a year to help these kids out, we got a team going the end of September. By the way, I'll add to the list. The whole list has been taken now on outside of those, all those items. I didn't even count the number of items that we ask you to help in providing that we could take with us. And all that list you guys provided already and said, hey, we'll, we'll help with that. Great job. Thank you. Listen, the, the generosity of this body in resources for the community and in international missions is greatly encouraging. Let's put it in the proper framework. You are being obedient to some of the last words that Jesus gave when he was on this earth. And he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to ask you a question. If I were to ask you, how do you know the Holy Spirit is moving in our church? How do you know that? Or just ask the regular Christian, particularly in America, how do you know the Holy Spirit is moving? The vast majority of people would see it through a very tiny window of basically four or five songs on a Sunday morning. I know the Holy Spirit is moving, but you know what? People are raising their hands. Nothing wrong with that. I love lively worship. But could it not be true that that's a pretty narrow window? I think when the Holy Spirit is really moving, we know the Holy Spirit is moving more about what we do outside the building than what is inside the building. When we see people going out, when we see people taking a part in this divine mandate... Have you ever thought that your generosity, your obedience to the gospel mission, your kindness to others, yours going, you going where God gives you the opportunity is a sign of the Holy Spirit's power in your life? Because that's exactly what it is. You have received power from the Holy Spirit 
so you go out and minister. That's how you know the Holy Spirit is moving in the body of Christ and to God be the glory. It's not a museum so we can sit here and, you know, just ooh and gaga over everything that's going on here. And not to say there's not ministry that goes on here. Obviously, there is. But listen, we are here to heal. We come here to get equipped, and then we go out on mission, baby, because that's where the action is. All right? Write that down. We go out on mission, baby, okay? Don't forget that. Now, our mission is certainly not over, right? And we don't want to sit here and just rest on our laurels. We're going to continue to expand our reach. But we measure this church not by counting heads on the inside, but by our ministry on the outside. We're not trying to, you know, become all things on people, all people. We're not trying to even market ourselves. We're not trying just to fill this place. We're not competing with some other ministry. We're trying to live out the values that God has given us through the power of his spirit that we have distilled from the scriptures to be involved in using our gifts, spreading the gospel, loving others as best we can. So each, each life group, each person is a living extension of the hands and feet of Jesus. We are on mission. The third value experts point to is authentic Christian community. What makes our community authentically Christian? How would you answer that question? What makes it authentically Christian? Well, I would suggest that there are things that are unique to being a Christian. I mean, if I were to ask you, what makes a diamond authentic? I got to know the difference between a fake and a real one, right? So when you're talking about authenticity, and by the way, I get it's an overused word, it means genuine. So what is a genuine Christian or a, a, a genuine Christian community? So we have to define what the kind and quality of that thing is. So that means unless you have an idea about what a, a, a real Christian or real Christian community looks like, you have no way of discerning its authenticity, right? So when it comes to having authentic Christian community, I think it's meaningless unless it has some semblance to a biblical worldview, not some Christian subculture with some denominational mandates given that we have to live under, but something that is distinctly distilled from the scriptures. There has to be a solid commitment to biblical truth and the gospel. I don't think you have any kind of genuine community without a a solid commitment to the word of God, its teaching, and the gospel. And I would take it even further. A mature Christian is one who has everything else subservient to the gospel. So that cultural mindsets, sectarian views, don't steal the beauty of the grace and the unity that we have in the spirit. I was talking to a missionary yesterday who was telling me he went to another country, had two pastors from America, 
started arguing in the bus as they were in this country about issues of eschatology or study of future things to where it became a real conflict between these two as there was another team of people to which you just want to say, shut up already, okay, really. That's not what you're here. We are subservient to the gospel, and these things, all right, I'm not saying they don't matter. I'm not saying they're not important. But our unity is not built around whether we're all a-mill, post-mill, pre-mill, whatever mill you want to choose. Our unity is around the fact of the gospel. So everything else is subservient to that. When recalling the wonderful movement of God, uh, Acts, Luke writes, as the church was just expanding, and he, he gives some clarity as to what the movement of the Holy Spirit looked like and what authentic Christian community, what it, what it should be. This is what he says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Notice that. And the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Notice that fellowship, then, or we could say community, is in the context of this spiritual activity, biblical teaching and prayer. It's why Paul says that there's really no real Christian fellowship that can take place when one is a Christian and one is not. Remember when he talked in 2 Corinthians 6.14 about not being unequally yoked? That's what he means. You can't have Christian fellowship, Christian community, with a non-Christian. Now, you can love your non-Christian friends, and you should. You could have, you know, a a closeness, and you should. But there's not going to be Christian fellowship because there's something that we share in a spiritual realm that you cannot share with somebody who does not have a relationship with Christ. In fact, John takes it further in 1 John 1, 7 when he said, but if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In other words, fellowship with one another means that there's a confession of sin, there is a, there's a relationship with, with Christ that is current. So you could have two Christians even talking together, but not having fellowship. One may be running from God or both may be running from God. Just the fact that they're communicating doesn't mean that they're really having close fellowship. John says when you walk in the light, fellowship is experienced. So fellowship is a a spiritual union between God and others where they're enjoying the fruit of relating to Christ. That's why you could go to a, a foreign country or just, you know, anywhere, and meet another Christian who you'd never met before, and it's like there's this instant connection. More so than, oh, you're from the same state or you're from the same city. Or, you know, that's no big deal. But the fact that this is a Christian, there are things that you share at a, at a deep level that you don't share with others. Now, certainly that could become deeper in time uh, if you get to know the person even better, but the point is the essence of that common Uh, of of that fellowship is a common relationship with the living God. So there's this spiritual aspect around the word and and prayer and and relationship to Christ that we experience that that dictates our fellowship. There's another part of authenticity 
And that is, and this is probably what most people mean by it, but that's where you let the real you be seen. You are indeed genuine. You're not hiding. You're not trying to fake somebody out, presenting something about yourself that is not true. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to share every dirty detail with everyone you meet, but it does mean that you're honest with everybody. I was so encouraged uh, this past week to uh, have some communication with a friend of mine who I went to school with, and he lost his wife uh, to cancer. And the things that he shared, the depth of his insight were quite impressive. He talked about trying to quit memorializing his wife and how he needed to accept his state of, of, of widowhood um, and, and how he had to, had to have current friendship that, that, that fed his soul. I mean, I just, sound, I just found it refreshingly honest and, and vulnerable and healing. And I think it's what all of us yearn to experience, is it not, when we talk about Christian fellowship? And it's really what we're talking about today when it comes to life groups. Because when you taste that, When you have that, you're just not willing to take anything less. And maybe that's why a lot of people are having problems connecting because they have tasted that before. And they're sick of just the, you know, Sunday morning experience, surface conversation, and you leave. And you never really get heart to heart with people. God obviously is not limited to some church-sponsored program like life groups, because we can experience deep, deep fellowship, obviously, within other venues. But I would say this, that genuine fellowship, that deep fellowship I've been talking about, is not a regular experience without intentionality. I mean, unless we plan for it, it's not happening with any regularity. I think it's why the Bible says that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Make it a priority. Make it a part of your schedule so that this is your experience. In fact, I would say that if you boil it all down, you're talking about people, you know, who are leaving the church. The things that I think keep people within a church and would, and would attract people who are, who are not here, the number one thing is consistent, deep, genuine Christian community. It is exactly what Jesus prayed for in John 17. And when they, when they know the love that you share amongst one another as disciples, they will know my love. That's what communicates it. We, we, we have this testimony of, of, of deep fellowship that we experience. That's why I encourage any of our ministry leaders that the most important thing we can do is not perform our ministry. I mean, if I, if I got up here and delivered what, you know, you might grade a great sermon, but I'm a schmuck when I get off the stage, and I don't want to talk to people, I don't want to relate to people, I don't relate deeply to people. Listen, that's no good, all right? I'm not ministering. I think the, the main job of any teacher, ministry leader, staff member, elder, Primarily is through relationship. And you can be great at the task and suck at the relationship. That's not acceptable. 
We have to allow the Holy Spirit to uh, connect with others heart to heart. It's, it's at the heart of who we are as a church and should be. And our spirits yearn for that. In fact, I would say it is impossible to have a person deeply connected with others who is not intentional about Christian community. I'm choosing my words carefully. Don't hear me say you have to be in a life group to have that fellowship. But my challenge is if you're not in a life group, how else are you getting that fellowship? Now, listen, I'm a pastor. And I have different groups that I lead, including uh, with our staff. We have five full-time staff here, and, and, you know, and we enjoy fellowship. Uh, elders, we enjoy close fellowship. Uh, men's discipleship group that I do every year. And the fellowship with these entities are, are you know, positive experiences. I also have several pastor friends or, or counselors that I have deep connections with. So the life group for Janet and I, man, that's like icing on the cake. And, and we're loving the icing, okay? But there, we have deep connections, newfound friends that we have this year that we didn't have last year. It's been fun. We've seen ministry sprout from our group. I cannot wait for the next round. And I got to tell you, I rarely hear, I don't know that I have, I've ever heard, I just can't remember right now, but I rarely hear a person say, I'm not connected, I don't feel a part of this church when they're in a life group. Now, we have made it easy for you. Uh, Today, you can meet the leaders, take a card, uh, check out the groups. We can't make people get connected, but we can provide ample opportunity for anyone who is intentional about authentic fellowship and participating in the gospel mission, uh, there are ways that you can experience that. And man, how exciting it is when you do experience that. How exciting it is to see, as this year we're seeing, our life groups multiply so that others can experience that as new groups um, become just a part of what we do. Just like what we want new churches to be a part of what we do. That's a part of the multiplication process I think God has built into it. We don't stand around here and say, oh, you know, I don't, I want to stay in my group forever. I don't want to leave, you know, or I just want to stay in this church. Um, we don't want to plant other churches. Listen, that, I, I get that we value that fellowship. I get that part of it. But our mandate is to go out and to see what God does in other relationships. God, you know what? God always does this, does he not? That when we multiply, when we are involved in ministry like that, he replaces that with other relationships that are just as deep and just as satisfying. But we get comfortable and we think this can never happen again, but God always does it. What do you say? We become intentional about that kind of Christian community. Let's pray.